course, like every other teenage kid, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. When I was 16 years old, I took off and drove across the country to Wyoming, went into the Wind River Range and discovered mountains. In 1973, Yvonne Chouinard founded Patagonia. I never wanted to be a businessman. All I wanted to do was do my craft and climb mountains. So then I had to figure out a way to where I was going to be a businessman, but I was going to do it completely on my own terms. Build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Join us at Patagonia.com. Welcome to the Dirtbag Diaries, a Duct Tapes and Beer production. With additional support from New Belgium Brewing, Kuat Racks, and Chaco. For me, paragliding is, is the freest sport I do. It, it feels the freest. When you're in the air, um, it's, it's, it sounds like a cliche, but it's, it's true. It's like it's freedom. It's flying is freedom. Aviation is freedom. It's the, it's the most wide open and least constrained thing I do. This is Will Gadd. I don't know why other people are getting into it, but I'd always had these dreams of flying where I was like, I wanted to be a bird. Paragliding, you can hike up a mountain and fly off and go fly 100K on a, or more than that some days on, on the shit you carried up the mountain in your backpack. And that is really cool. Will is considered a legend in the climbing world. He's also a badass kayaker. And what people don't know is that he's also a legend in the smaller world of paragliding. His long-distance record for longest flight held up for almost a decade. He's won competitions. He's basically as accomplished in paragliding as he is in climbing. And that's saying something. He's one of the best mountain athletes ever. His approach is, is precise. You know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of an art. This is renowned pilot Gavin McClurg, who's got a couple of distance records to his name as well. I can't believe how much energy he has, especially for a, a guy that's 47. You know, it's, it's incredible. This last year, Gad established what was arguably the most difficult climbing route of his life. And he's been setting standards in ice and mixed climbing for a long time. He's basically been able to reverse the standard thinking that an athlete peaks in their 20s. And to me, that's the sign of the great ones. Whether it's in football or in our world of adventure. That longevity. There comes a point where the technical achievement takes a back seat. Not to say that it no longer matters, because it does. But technical difficulty simply becomes a means to an end. It gives way to simplicity, to an aesthetic, to an iconic style that leaves an impression on generations to come. It brings to mind the famous Chouinard quote, The more you know, the less you need. Today we present Flying Deeper, the story about Will and Gavin's paragliding journey along the spine of the Canadian Rockies and the fringe sport of Vol Bivy. A single trip can alter even the most accomplished athlete's perspective. I'm Fitzgahal, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. So when I was a kid, we went on vacation, and I can't remember exactly where it was, 
but it was somewhere sunny and warm, and there was beach and water, and somehow or another I got to go parasailing. Like, think Club Med. You launch on the back of a boat in a wing, they pay out the cable, the boat moves forward, creating lift, you drift in the sky. And for a long time, I thought that's what paragliding was. And then I saw a movie, much later, called The Birdmen of the Karakoram, about paragliding in the Himalaya, and I was like, holy shit, this is different. It was like hang gliding, but they were flying around on massive peaks in a bunch of gear that they could hike up a hillside and then launch. They'd carry a small reserve parachute just in case something went wrong, but otherwise it was like a super simple thing, just a, a pilot, a wing, and a landscape. Paragliding is bigger in Europe. There are about 80,000 licensed pilots over there, and here it's much smaller, like about 6,000, which is pretty French. And what we're talking about today is something called vol bivy, French for fly camping. It is the fringe of the fringe. Will and Gavin think that there are about 50 people in the world that are practicing this type of flying. Basically, imagine linking up several days of flying following wind and weather across a landscape. It was the brainchild of French pilot Pierre Bouillot. Here's Will again. He had a really cool concept, and that was take off in France, fly somewhere cool in the mountains, land up high, go explore that area in the time that was left in the day, or if it was too windy to fly the next day, go exploring, check it out, learn something. Maybe if there's people there, meet them, learn. And then, and then fly somewhere else when it was cool to do so again, when it was good to do so again. And I really liked that mix of, of flying and exploring the alpine landscape. I, th- I think that's really, you know, anytime I'm in the alpine, I'm pretty happy no matter what sport I'm doing there, whether I'm skiing or climbing or whatever. It's just awesome. So that was, that's always what's fired me up about bull bivy paragliding. A while back, Will got psyched on this idea of using his paraglider to traverse a range. Ten years ago, the Red Bull X-Alps competition started up. Basically, it was a race across the entire Alps. The rub was that in the mountains, only about half the days are suitable for flying. If the winds are too strong or the clouds are too low, you don't have the conditions. So it can turn into a foot race pretty quickly. I thought probably we would be hiking along alpine ridges and then flying. That's what I kind of had in my mind. But um, we figured out within a couple of days that that, uh, walking up high if your adventure racing is a real waste of time. So what would happen is that the racers would hike up a hill, they'd fly into the valley, and then walk up the valley for 10 miles until they could climb back and launch again. It was a lot of walking and not a lot of flying. And you do that for a couple hundred hours and you're going to get across the Alps. And that didn't really strike me as I, you know, as I spent as an hour 10 of hiking along a road in the Alps in the rain in, in the valley bottom while the Euros tried to kill me. I, I just sort of lost my... Um, appreciation for that. Um, it just didn't seem much like it was this cool concept of flying and, and using the paraglider to explore the landscape in a cool way. At some point last year, Will and Gavin started talking and settled in on a route from McBride, Alberta to the U.S. border, about 400 miles to the south. Will owned the world record for the longest flight with a 263-mile journey in Texas. He did that in a single day in ideal flying conditions. But the terrain and weather they would encounter might mean that this flight could take weeks. They would have to pick apart the terrain, fly in conditions that were both sketchy and difficult to make forward progress. A successful flight might be 20 miles. They would fly over some of the most remote and rugged sections of the Canadian Rockies. We also, through pure ignorance, sort of chose a place that wasn't very good to land a paraglider for a lot of it. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think there's always this idea of these expeditions that there's like a crack team of researchers and, you know, and maybe this is the way some people run expeditions, you know, there's a tremendous amount of forethought and everything that goes into it. But most of my expeditions and trips, it's like, man, wouldn't it be cool to do ABC and then we go try to do it with very little like actual research or thought. <laughs> so if we're ever on a trip together, you should just know that. For me, I have a, I, I have what I think is a cool idea or, or almost a dream and then you go and try and make that happen. If they were successful, the trip would be a step forward, not just for them as pilots, but for the entire sport. They settled on August and put the plan in motion. We had our landscape and we had our style and it's like, all right, let's put this in the blender and, and see what it tastes like. We we launched near McBride. We we drove up an old logging road to as high as we could, then hiked up to a para, you know, to a launch up there in the Alpine. McBride is a small town on the north end of the Rockies. Just to the southeast sits Mount Robson, one of Canada's most iconic peaks and the tallest in the Rockies. It's known for bad weather. Well, guess is that he's driven past the mountain maybe a hundred times and seen it only five. Today, the weather was perfect. With an opportunity like this, they altered their proposed route. And we had the perfect day. There was no wind. Cloud-based marks the top of the lift in general. It was over the top of Robson, which is relatively rare because it's it's more than it's about ten thousand feet from the valley bottom to the top of Robson. So it, it's just a massive peak, and generally it creates its own kind of cloud cap. But it was perfect. The clouds were like. 500 feet over the summit and we launched from McBride and flew like 50 or 60k and then if we just if we were just interested in flying distance we would have kept flying down the valley and gone a long way that day but Mount Robson was right there so we jumped over a couple peaks and and did something that never in my wildest dreams did I that I think just sort of happened like that. If you throw your reserve on the north, on the south face of Robson, holy shit, you're, that's going to be an adventure to get you out of there. You're going to, you'd give Parks Canada a pretty good long line challenge right there. <laughs> Thermaled right up the south face, which I've, I've actually climbed. He was losing his mind. Like he was just screaming and hollering. And, and here we are thermaling our paragliders right over the summer, summit of it. This is something I'm going to like hopefully show my grandchildren one day, you know, like, uh, I'm just so, like, I'm still buzzing. Like, it's been a month now, like, a month and a half, and I'm still, my blood pressure elevates just thinking about this. That was the first day. If conditions held, they would be at the border in no time. The detour altered their route, but the pilots made progress flying close together, sharing thermals as they gained altitude, and then gliding forward before finding another invisible current upward. At the end of the day, or when the wind and weather dictated, they would aim for an alpine landing zone and set up camp for the evening. In the morning, if the weather was good, they would hike to the takeoff and launch. Just after Robson, Will and Gavin landed on the flanks of Mount Terry Fox, named after a national hero who ran across Canada on a prosthetic leg, only to succumb to cancer after it spread into his lungs two-thirds of the way through the journey. And this is like, this is what's cool about this concept of vol bivy flying is, is relating to the landscape. Um, 
rather than trying to just force yourself to a geographic destination, it's like, well, it makes more sense if we're just trying to get somewhere to, to keep flying along the main valley and not go to Mount Robson. But because all that had happened, now we're, now we're getting to climb Mount Terry Fox. And that's, that's pretty cool. Like, I don't know. It's not a technical climb or anything to speak of, but it's, it's just a, a really cool place. And, a, and, it, and, and the randomness of getting dropped into the landscape and finding cool stuff there is, is what Volbivy flying is all about to me. Later, they flew over sections of Karst, which held alluring caves God had never seen or heard about. We would never have found that place, and nobody knows anything about it. And we found it just because we like randomly dropped out of the sky in that general area. I landed on the next peak over from Gavin and found a bunch of caves over there too. And these are nobody knows about these. We we found this just through the sheer random interaction with the landscape that this style of flying gives you. This can seem idyllic. Two guys floating around in the sky and landing in alpine meadows to camp beneath the stars. But the flying was nothing of the sort. And we, we talk about, you know, going, quote unquote, deep, you know, and, and what what that has always meant to me, whether you're flying in the Sierras or the Himalayas or anything, is, you, you know, you fly over terrain that's either unlandable or um, if you do land, it could be really hard to get out. It wasn't deep in any of those ways. It was deep in that you couldn't land. There, like, there was no place to land. And if you could, which meant basically you're going to hang yourself in a tree and then cut yourself loose and get down on the ground somehow. We, we carry tree kits with us. Um, you know, getting out is would be a multi-day, like, expedition in itself. You know, it would be, it would be pretty tough. As Will and Gavin began to move south, the commitment level increased. The weather grew more difficult. It's important to remember... So they have no motors. It's all about catching thermals. If you don't catch a thermal, you have to land. And if there's no place to land, you crash. It's kind of like swimming in a kayak. Sometimes it's okay, and sometimes it gets kicks the shit out of you and you die. Um, so, and the line is really fine between those two things sometimes, finer than we realize, I believe. Because we were trying to go from north to south, we ended up having to fly with a lot of wind and wind in the wrong direction and it was a uh, super technical. North of Revelstoke, they reached Kinbasket Lake, which is a reservoir and fills a long valley bottom. That day, we flew another, uh, not very far, maybe 20k, uh, and got in kind of a bad spot. I actually crashed. It was the first time I'd crashed on a paraglider and, and messed my face up a bit. And uh, you know, so that kind of, I mean, that was only day four or something, and it, so it kind of put me back, you know, it just took the ego out of it and, and it started getting really real then. Weather set in. That lake is 200 kilometers long roughly and normally what you do in paragliding if it's too windy you go out and you land in the valley where it's less windy but our valley was filled up with a lake and, and there's no like real beach along the edge of the lake. There's, there's old logging roads but a lot of them are overgrown and they look great from the air, and then you then you get low, and you realize that there's like twenty foot alders all over them, and the logging cuts would just and they log these logging cuts from from boats, so there's no continuous like you can't really walk anywhere because they pull a barge up on the edge of it, log that area, and then move to the next drainage and log it. So you, there are signs of people having been there, but there's there's no way to really move around on the west side or on the east side of that valley. They sat and waited, studying the terrain. We were looking at this um, 
really quite uh, exposed and very difficult move. One day. Once we were in there, it was either we were going out in a helicopter or we were going to fly out. We had to cross a big part of the lake. Two days. And there was nowhere to land unless you count the lake. If you choose a more minimalistic style, then you have to be comfortable with not pushing as hard in, in some conditions in all these sports, you know? Then three days. Man, I really think building our raft would have been our best option. We had kind of four days to look at this move and get more and more stressed out about it. They were running out of food. We would have built a raft and, and paddled across like 30K a lake to get out of there. <laughs> yeah, it was certainly the definition of, uh, of adventure, you know? like We had to fly our way out of there. We finally launched on the fourth day and, you know, had really good conditions. It took us quite a while to, to make this kind of big move, this 20 kilometer move. And then we ended up flying that day about 110 kilometers. So, you know, we were almost like taken out of the reality for a while. Like it was just, you know, like we'd taken some kind of drug, you know, that was this combination of adrenaline and fear and, and, uh, and, you know, low, low blood sugar and all those things that go into from a, a real full day. You know, it's like, I've done a lot of flying all over the world for 20 years. And that's about as burly and intense as I ever really want to fly a paraglider in. clock was ticking on summer in its favorable flying conditions. If we could have had more weather like that first day, it would have taken us four days to do the whole thing. It took us 35, you know, so that kind of gives you an idea for uh, what, we, what we ran into weather-wise. They were pinned down in Golden for five days. They kept making progress, fighting for short flights of 30 to 50 kilometers, sticking together and doing their best to manage difficult conditions. No matter what I'm doing, I'm pretty much envisioning the worst possible scenario and how to deal with it all the time. That's how my brain works, at, at least until I'm in the moment of it. Once I'm in the moment of it, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. But it's, I, I don't look at, like I, I have all these big dreams. It's like, oh, shit, it would be cool to go do this. And then I, and then I have to spend all this time thinking about all the things that are going to go wrong, how I'm going to deal with them, and, and visualizing and visualizing and visualizing until I'm good with, with the situation or I don't do it. If I can't see it clearly in my head, I don't do it. And with this one, after so many days of, of pushing hard in big conditions, I started to feel like I was getting on the wrong side of a, of a numbers curve. And you can only push so hard for so long and then start to make bad decisions. But something had also shifted inside Gavin and Will as pilots. Their understanding of what it meant to be deep had shifted. On, on September, whatever it was, we flew the last um, 50K or so to the U.S. border, and, and the 50K flight's just not very much, but it took us two days. We had to fly like 25, 20K, land on top of a peak in the snow because the day was just too short, and then wait for the next day and then fight for 30K and, and, and to, just to get to the U.S. border. And, and, there is a way to fly to the U.S. border that has relatively good roads and places to land, but we couldn't get there because the day wasn't good enough. So we ended up flying up this valley that had no access for 25K up the valley. And before I started this trip, I would have been like, what do you mean? If we go down, we're going to have to hike 25K out of there. That's going to suck. It's basically going to take a day to hike out of there. Let's not fly in there. That's kind of how my thinking would have been. And 
neither Gavin nor I even question it at all. It's like, oh, it's only 25K. We're good to go. Like, don't even worry about it. I'll get out of there eventually. <laughs> Something will happen here. You know, and, we, and uh, we've got a tent and, and a stove and a sleeping bag here. We're going to be fine. It was, it's a real paradigm shift. It's, it's really opened up my mind to the possibilities of this style of flying. Um, you kind of think of the borders being a place that there's going to be some kind of development <laughs> and people and stuff around. And the, the route that we ended up having to take was was one main ridge away from the, the road that crosses there at uh, uh, Rooseville, I think is the name of that town, and just north of Eureka. And, you know, there's there's nothing out there. We flew to the border and, you know, we videoed a little bit with our GoPros and then turned around and flew back 20 kilometers to get to a road where a truck could come in and get us. If we're looking for sort of numbers and firsts and stuff, I would call this the longest pure paragliding trip ever completed. Flying over the U.S. border in the middle of nowhere, and it's beautiful and it's awesome. And I think Gavin and I both would have liked to have just kept going, but I think that would have caused an international incident. It seems like this trip was a was a big deal for you guys, but it also seems like it helped set a precedent for Volbivy. What does this do for your your mindset as a pilot? It's just it's just it's just really neat being at this sport at this time. You know, it's it's like big wave surfing was thirty years ago or something. It's it's you know it's or it's alpine climbing in Greg Lowe days. It, it's it's just awesome the amount the what we what hasn't been done and what we could do and, you know, and what we can imagine. I think, I hope I can imagine that, you know, in 20 years from now, pilots then are going to look back at the stuff we're doing now and just go, holy shit. This is obviously an incredible journey and there are some really close calls. Um, do you think that that risk just is part of that true adventure of, of, of really pushing a sport through landscapes? There's not a lot of heroism or like contempt for danger here. I, I run away a lot, and and so I'm pretty proud not to have all that many of those moments. But definitely had a couple on this trip where I was like, "Oh, you've really screwed up this time." And then the flip side is we had some just moments of sh many, many, many more moments of sheer magic where it's like flying a paraglider over the summit of Mount Robson. I definitely felt like I was pretty much the luckiest human on the planet right then. Like, <laughs> it was a magic, magic moment that just, yeah, it's, it's, I, I got that one. It's logged, logged in the banks, memory banks, and it's, it's a good one. Do you think it changed your perspective? I've been a professional athlete, sports guy, writer, person for a long time now, and I've been pondering what's what's next. Like, I'm 47 years old here, you know, I'm not going to be, I can, I can obviously still climb pretty damn hard, and I can paddle pretty hard if that's what I want to do, but I've, I, I can fly, compete and stuff and that, but it, those things don't really fire me up that much anymore. This trip confirmed for me that what's really cool in the world is exploring the landscape, that that sheer pursuit of technical difficulty at a certain point starts to lose its interest, not so much because of the danger, but just it's like I've been there. 
I've done thousands of pull-ups, hundreds of thousands of pull-ups. I've done a lot of pull-ups, and I'll still keep doing pull-ups. I like doing pull-ups. I just would rather do something other than do more hundreds of thousands of pull-ups in the near future. There's cool shit out there. I don't want to miss it while I'm doing pull-ups. The coolest things out there are not defined by numbers or, or geography. They're defined by like what's cool and and what's going on in the landscape. It doesn't matter what it is either. Like, you know, what I'm going to do as soon as we get off here, I'm going to go beat around on the backside of Mount Rundle because I, I saw a hole up there in the wall the other day while I was flying and I want to take my headlamp and go find out what's in that hole. <laughs> it doesn't have to be rad. It's like, it's, it's more about just finding cool things that are interesting and checking them out. And, and that's what I'd like to do. That's what's next for me. It's like, go interesting places, do interesting things and, and share those experiences if I can. Special thanks to Will and Gavin. National Geographic honored them as Adventurers of the Year for their groundbreaking flight, and it was well-deserved. Music today by our good friend Jacob Bain and his band Published the Quest. Many of you know Jacob through the diaries, and this year he put out an incredible new album, A Thousand Kinds of Gold. Check it out. It's the result of his numerous trips to Africa in collaboration with some of the continent's best musicians. Additional music by Caribou and the one and only Amy Stolzenbach. You can find links on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. And speaking of websites, all the generous donations over the last year have resulted in a totally new Dirtbag Diaries website. It's easier to find old episodes, search past seasons, and highlights the incredible artwork of my brother Walker, whose designs over the last few years have been truly amazing. Check it out. Consider making a donation of your own to keep us on track for a decade of incredible stories. A big thanks to all of our sponsors for the last year, Patagonia, Chaco, Kuat Racks, and New Belgium. This would not have been possible without their continued support. If you like what you hear, let them know and give thanks. We've delivered a million files last year, and all this is free to you as a listener. So thanks to every one of those companies who have made this show possible. It has been another incredible year here, and all of us at Duct Tape and Beer and the Dirtbag Dairies, we want to say thanks for listening. Happy 2015.